This is Sabrina Marie, host of the Building Abundant Success Series. Our spotlight is on networking. I read a great book, Why Not Win, by Larry D. Thornton. talks about growing up in the segregated South, earning $5 in the workroom, and then going to the boardroom at Coca-Cola, and later on becoming a franchisor with the McDonald's Corporation. But before that, growing up in the segregated South, he talks about the psychology of segregation. We are living in some interesting times where people think learning about history, collective history, so we can all work together and win together isn't important. But he had to learn two hard knocks, as we all do, about diversity, embracing differences of opinions, resources, conflicting opinions. And even though he was praised by his hires up and his bosses, his subordinates, people he had to work with every day to build that winning team were often at conflict because he was winning. Thanks God for that. And he has a winning team put together with his leadership development. You can go to LarryThornton.com and find out more about him. But this awesome interview starts right now. But uh, in reading your book, Why Not?, I was looking at a lot of interesting parallels would give uh, anybody a right to just throw their hands up and say, oh, what the heck, you know. <laughs> so you're, you're a country boy. You were born out there in the, the segregated oh, yeah. south. And oh, yeah. um, it, um, it's a different, uh, it means a different thing today to a kid growing up to hear, unless they've heard from their grandparents or parents, you know, what the segregated south was. So let's let's start with where you're from and um you know a little bit about the south when you first came in remembrance maybe about 4 or 5 years old what do you remember yeah. about those times growing up Well you know it's interesting um the the one thing that always stood out to me as it relates to segregation was the element of suppose about that whole circumstance. Um, wow. We would pass certain facilities, swimming pools, for instance, and we'd see all the kids swimming, water, having fun. Why is it that we have to go to this particular one? But it was never a question, a serious right. question, because we got to swim. That, that was the most important thing. Uh, we'd go downtown. Uh, you asked about five and six years old. We'd go downtown. We would. We lived in Madison Park. We would go to town, <clears throat> and we would go to town. One of my favorite meals, uh, Sabrina, was a hamburger and a glass of milk. That was my meal when I knew that I was going downtown. Whatever we were going for, that's uh, that was the climax of the visit. And whenever I would move into the direction of the greenery and the music and the nice sitting and dining areas, my mom would take me by the hand and lead me downstairs, uh, specifically at H.L. Green's department store. And that's where black folk ate. She wow. never explained why. Not once did she ever say why. I never asked why. I got my hamburger and milk, and so things were fine. And that was the unique thing as an adult, and I never got to know my mother as an adult. She died when I was about 20 years old. And uh, But I would love to have asked those questions of her 
the why of it all, uh, probably because she wanted to protect us. Because if you ask questions, you start to think. And when you start to think, you start to expect things to be different. And perhaps you might even be moved to make a difference, but that could also mean uh, danger for her baby boy. And so I would suspect that it had a lot to do with uh, trying to protect me. Um, I think I must be around 14 years old now, you know, kind of becoming a little man, Zilla. And I remember the insurance men, you know, they, 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 you didn't send your money in on the policy. My mother would, they would travel the, traverse the community <clears throat> and you see them house after house to house going in to collect those, uh, burial policy monies. And so this gentleman came up, white gentleman, uh, Sabrina, and he said, uh, is Sarah home? That's my mother's first name. And so I'm a little man now, and I said, uh, no, but Mrs. Thornton is. And I thought my mother would have a come apart. Oh, my, oh my God. <laughs> you know, wow. you come in to ask to collect my mama's money. You can't even say Mrs. Thornton. But, you know, I don't understand the you know, order of the day as well. But, yeah, those are some of the things that kind of come to mind. The last thing I'll share, and this is something that Zilla insists that I share whenever the uh, time is appropriate, uh, is getting uh, this particular Christmas, Sabrina, Santa Claus, I must have been five or six, so this would have been the uh, 60, 59, 1959 or 60. And Santa Claus brought one of my sisters a black doll. And I remember my sister crying throughout Christmas Day. And I remember very clearly wondering why my mother would do such a thing. Why did she get her that thing? And, 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 and why is that? <clears throat> you know, why, why would Santa Claus bring that? But in that day, you only had two stations, maybe three, and we would kind of, you know, vacillate between the, the stations, one here, one there. But on every station, we knew that on Saturday mornings we could compile our requests for Santa. This is what we wanted Mom to tell Santa to bring us. Every doll to my sisters was Susie Smart, blonde, blue-eyed. That was a doll. That Nothing else was a doll. And... Here again, if there, if there were, if, if I, there was one conversation that I'd love to bring my mom back and to have, and Zilla knows this well, I'd like to ask her her thoughts and her thinking. Not so much that she did it, Sabrina, but she finally, after a day or two, she acquiesced and she went out and she got the doll that my sister could identify with. And I'm thinking how difficult that must have been for her mm-hmm. to do because the entire point was to help us to see ourselves differently. Uh, Zilla uses the, the term, uh, and I've adopted it, I use it often now, the social construct of that day created that circumstance. And mom is trying to cut against the grain of that messaging and she made this move, and the move, Sabrina, did not stick. And how difficult mm. must that have been for her to actually go out and get that doll for my sister so that my sister could feel like 
her neighbors and her friends and cousins. And wow, it was just that that stays with me perhaps more than anything. I'm sorry to have gotten so long on that. <laughs> well, no, that's a good that's a good point to to mention because you know there have been many studies of the black baby dolls versus the white baby dolls and what people in perception of oneself. Yeah. Is, is 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 really about. I remember having black baby dolls and a few of other other nationalities, but yeah. um, that's vitally important to actually see and have images of yourself. And when your mom was taking you to where you know black folks ate, um, yeah. kind of enforcing uh, certain, well, I guess the norms of of the day. Um, I'm sure that definitely shaped you to who you are today, not forgetting that, not forgetting that. Now, in that South, so our our listeners understand, we we read about, you know, we learn about the segregated times, we learned about, you know, a lot of different things during that time, but you actually were uh, up front, live, and center in that. And one of the things that got me, you are talking about um, segregated schools and then being plucked away to integrate and be in another setting, sort of um, uh, a reboot of your way of thinking, being around different people, different around different teachings, and how you as a student perceived yourself as not doing well based upon a grade. And that, you know, that can be ingrained in a kid's head. Um, Absolutely. But that, was, that, but that necessarily might not have been so. But you were able to have a different way of thinking about that the longer you went through. Can you tell us about the school systems then um, and what it was like in your mind and heart, uh, not just to integrate, but the reboot? You're in a different way of being because many people in the South, they're basically, from my understanding, and most people, not just the South, but it could be the North or anywhere. They're used to being in their comfort yeah. zone, not being plucked up as a kid. Yep. Well, if you think about uh, going to an all-black elementary school, then to matriculate to Booker T. Washington in the 7th mm-hmm. and 8th grades, and we had this forward-thinking attorney who thought it appropriate to, uh, rightfully so, to integrate, you know, we have this opportunity now. Brown versus Board of Education, this landmark ruling that occurred uh, in 1954 with a 9-0 decision. 100% without one dissenting vote, the Supreme Court, that ruled that separate in and of itself is unequal. And so they created what was called freedom of choice about 12 to 13 years later. Now, the southern states, as you well know, didn't abide by that ruling, a federal mandate, actually. It was some 12, 13, 14 years later in 67, 68, before uh, that happened. And, of course, there I was. Uh, Having been born in 1954, I thought the irony of all of that, having been born in 1954, (laughs) this ruling is put forth. Southern states says, we ain't doing that, you know. So now it's 67, 68, and who would be among these first six black students 
than Larry Thornton. So this attorney kind of went about the community canvassing for those takers who would make this move. Uh, it was an experiment, actually. Uh, his daughter was going to be one of them, which was a great selling point. wasn't asking us to do something that um, he wasn't willing to um, put some skin, that he wasn't willing to do. He's willing to put some skin in that game as well. So here again, my mother, uh, which speaks so well to her thinking, you know, here's an opportunity. The the difficult thing, even more difficult thing, Sabrina, about that whole circumstance is that I had skipped the first grade. So I'm five years old in the second grade. And would turn, well, a month or two later, of course, I would turn six. So when this first occurred, I'm 12 years old in the ninth grade. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine what's going on in the mind of a 12-year-old. So how old is uh, Coleman? Not quite 12. He's he's eight. Nine. Nine, sorry. Nine, yeah. And so, you know, you, you think of sending your baby into this tumultuous circumstance God knows we all felt that mom loved us, both our parents, and so you know that, and you realize how difficult that was for her to say, yes, I'll volunteer my son and my daughter. My sister went on to Robert E. Lee that same year, Villa, Barbara. And so, uh, yeah, that was the that was an interesting time. So at 12, you know, you're just reaching puberty, you know, just kind of gaining some sense of identity, who you are. You're, you're, you're coming into your own individual thought process, uh, I would imagine, and to get these tremendous messages of inferiority, Sabrina, on a daily basis from everything around you, every gesture, from sitting in a class to sitting at a lunchroom table, everybody gets up and leaves you sitting there, you walk down the hall, people get out of your way. Uh, you can either feel special <laughs> or you could feel ostracized. Of course, we all felt ostracized. You, you take a drink of water. Nobody would take a drink of water after you. You know, you could feel either special or you could feel ostracized. We felt ostracized. And it was just mm-hmm. the, the, the messaging, the nonverbal messaging of that really did a number on me. Uh, I remember George, my good friend George, parent who came out about mid-year, maybe a few months of it. Uh, it was it was horrific. Uh, I, I have to admit that I we, we didn't have any violence, but, you know, pinching here and there, pushing and shoving, you know, that kind of thing, but no real serious violence. They'd have to protect us after school, the mobs, those dropouts, those gangs of, of uh, older uh, white boys would come around uh, making plans to do harm, so they, were, they had security to kind of watch and take care of us. But we were very, very much aware of all of that. Uh, even the next day, Sabrina, coming to school after Dr. King had been killed uh, was a particularly uh, resonant uh, day and moment for us uh, to hear those comments and uh, what went on in 1968, <clears throat> the latter part of that school year. But uh, it was just a real shock. We had never been around whites like that. And whites mm-hmm. had never, many of them had never been around us like that on what should have been or what was perceived to be uh, even kill, a level playing field. I mean, I'm in this desk, you're in that desk in the ninth grade. That is a suggestion that you are equal to me, which 
uh, violates everything that I've been taught, uh, they had been taught in their first 12, 13 years, that you're not equal to me. And so it was a tough time, difficult time for them and difficult time for us. I mean, we would go through the entire day without seeing each other because there's only six of us at this school. So uh, I, I, of course, got turned off to school. And uh, I don't know how much of the book you've reviewed, but, you know, I went to summer school every year. All of the book. All of the book. Oh, did you? Um, Okay. Yeah, I reviewed reviewed all of it. And the reason why I'm I'm doing this, in my audience's mind, um, we're dealing with not only millennials, but Gen Z. And but we're also dealing uh, with a force of people who grew up not only when you grew up, but we're dealing with uh, Gen Xers. And yeah. everybody in yeah. those generations is going to see something. But what I saw throughout the book was that you had to bloom where you were planted. And in that time of being, I believe you said nine nine years old, and being plucked out of one school to the other, yep, and learning a new environment. I mean, I'm a, I'm a military brat, so we moved every two years. And oh, yeah. Well, you get it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, if you had not been plucked up at that young age to be able to adapt and, and draw in um, that sponge of being different from people, people not necessarily liking you, not growing up. Today you hear a lot of parents say, oh, I don't want to take my kids out of the school zone. I don't want to yeah. uproot and I don't yeah. want to – but in dealing with Coca-Cola and dealing with McDonald's and dealing with people and dealing with different um, things that you have been able to go through, the different types of people, you learn from an early age that, Absolutely. you know, you not only bloom where you're planted, but that it, the road's not going to always <laughs> be, be an easy easy one. I learned that as being the new kid on the block every couple of years. <laughs> you know, oh, it's like, oh, no, not this again. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so that's over what I got. Over and over again. Over and over. But it makes you stronger, too. But you, you don't see it as a kid. You just don't see that yep. as a kid. Yep. So you are so right. And that was the difficult mm-hmm. piece for me uh, going through. I could never understand why I was getting that level and caliber of treatment. And I hadn't done anything. I mean, in, in anyone's community, you might not like a person, but there was a clear reason, whether it was a good reason or not. I didn't like him. He's just too skinny. I just don't like you, you know. Uh, or it could be something more pointed. But I couldn't figure out why. Why do they not like me? Why do they not choose me to be on their team? And when I finally came to realize, kind of like the prodigal son, when he came unto himself and he realized that this is about skin pigment, not that I knew mm-hmm. what pigment was it that day, this is about hair texture? Really? Mm-hmm. That, I mean, so that's it. That, that's, <laughs> that's it. And so it, it was like, and I often wonder if my mother knew the extent of the turmoil and the challenge. Uh, but I just turned off to school, uh, Sabrina. I, I wish it were different. I shouldn't have because I had to go back and relearn a lot of stuff to do some of the things that I'm doing today and to uh, to entice a 
PhD to want to work and partner with me. You know, I had to go back and do a lot of relearning over those years. But I went to summer school to make this short year after year after year. And uh, if you read the book, then you know what happened to me in my senior year. I'm not sure if you want me to mm-hmm. chat about that or not. But I graduated right. in summer school. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I look at that and then I look at my world today, two points I'm going to make is that, one, I love it when people think that I was SGA president, you know, more like Dr. Fluger, than I was, you know, or even knew what an SGA you know, honor society. That's what people think today when I'm introduced, and they have, they would have no clue that I actually graduated uh, in summer school. But you said something a moment ago that I think is uh, particularly uh, of interest. The that experience prepared me literally. I mean, literally, for the world that I live in today, when you think about that, yeah, that white world is almost identical outside of the restaurants. I have a couple of stores that get high white traffic. Uh, the rest of, is, are basically inner city stores. But the rest of the professional side of my world, uh, being on the board of directors of Coca-Cola, the board of directors of Sonova's, uh, being in the largest Kiwanis club in the world, and perhaps the whitest, of course, in the world. First African-American president of this um, business dining club with over 6,000 members with only a sprinkling of African-Americans. Um, that facility started in 1951, initiated in 51. And, I mean, blacks couldn't, even if you were not working there, could certainly not... Uh, be a member of this private situation. So getting to your early, to your earlier point, getting accustomed, and the way I call it, the way I identify that is this way, learning to be comfortable in an uncomfortable setting. Uh, there's so much to be gained for the benefit of ourselves, our communities, and our families if we can master that circumstance. How do I become comfortable? Because I know I need to be here. How can I become comfortable in this uncomfortable sitting? Uh, little things like the way whites reverenced and included their animals into their family was very different from what we knew as a dog. And so I learned that when a dog or an animal had to be put down, that it was a very special and serious circumstance. We never knew when our dogs died or when they, you know, they would just be gone. You know, they were yard dogs. They fended for themselves. But I learned that uh, little things like a white kid would say, Mom and Dad had a fight last night. And they really meant argument. In my community... Mom and dad had a fight, means that blood was drawn. They would say things like, you know, uh, you just, you meet me at 3.30 after school, and I don't kick your, you know. And I'm thinking to Ronnie and Eddie, you know, my buddies, I said, man, can you believe that? They planned their fights over here, you know. We never heard that at Booker T. Washington, you know. If you had a difference, it was time to fight. You fought. Well, you just handle it. 
kind of like my mama. My mama never said, when you get home, I'm going to spank none wherever the circumstance was. So we knew that, you know, no chance of hoping that she forgets it. You know, it's going to happen right now, here and now. So anyway, those little things. So when I'm teaching school at Vestavia High School, when an animal had to be put down, I understood the significance of what that meant. If I didn't, I would have taken a very cavalier attitude about it and perhaps, you know, created a circumstance that was not going to be good for me leading that class. So in this world today, uh, I'm typically, and in most cases, the only black in the room on the board or whatever, and I would say to your earlier point that that started during the 9th and 10th and 11th and 12th grade at um, these uh, schools that were being integrated. Interesting point that you would pick up on. Yes, and another thing that I picked up on throughout, um, not just Miss Battleac, but a little bit before that, um, <laughs> mindset, mindset, mindset. Yeah. Um, you're put on certain situations, not just uh, learning from your mom and your surroundings and wooing, you know, the girl in the neighborhood and all that. You're you're looking at things, and you have to have a certain mindset, especially when your somebody's foot or a system's foot is on your neck, even when you're in school and you're yep. you're graduating in summer school. You have to be able to look at a way out of that. Some people, like I said early in the interview, they just throw their hands up and say, what the heck, I quit. You know, yep. This is just, yep. no, forget it. Yep. And many did. Speak to, mindset, speak, speak to that whole mindset thing of thinking outside the box. Because uh, many people say, oh, you go to uh, your elementary school and you go to your junior high school or you go to your you know, high school. You go, and this is just the way it is. Period. There's no deviation. There's not, and if it is yeah. deviation, you fail. That's not even true. That's not even near true. So very true. So very true. Um, you speak even with college. Some people you... don't go to college. Some people don't go to college <laughs> right after high school. Right. You know. Right. But the, but it's thinking outside the box of what gifts you have, what you have to add to whatever, and. And the mindset, this is what I, I took away from the book. It's like, okay, this guy really had to maneuver different paths and different situations, and he could have given up at any of those areas, any of those, those crossroads. <laughs> Great. And so the very idea that I would talk about, uh, honestly, some of the things that probably some authors probably would not have included – uh, in the book, but it was so important to me that this would be a catalyst to help people with their mindset and their tenacity, with the drive to continue in spite of these things are happening, but don't allow that to define you. That's the message in the book, and I'm so happy to know that you picked up on that. Uh, you sound as if you have um, attended one of the sessions that uh, Dr. Fluker and I, uh, are you familiar with the fact that we have initiated uh, an institute from the book? Do you know anything of that? No? Oh, wow. Yeah, tell us about that also and why that wow. mindset on, and, and also thinking outside the box. 
speak to that because that's exactly what you have had to, whether, you know, you wanted to learn it or not. You were kicked in that direction to think literally outside the box and, well, how am I going to do this? You know, how am I going to go yeah. from being an artist to, you know, running business? How do I do that, you know? Absolutely. <clears throat> uh, what, what an interesting uh, comment and question. I'm going to kind of set this up, but uh, if it's okay with you, I think Dr. Fluker could do a much more effective job of talking about what we've done as the Institute. But let me, let me just set it up, <clears throat> because mindset uh, happens to be one of the, one of the premier uh, discussions that we have in roundabout ways. Because mm -hmm. uh, I think, uh, Lilla, the last commencement that I did, uh, I tried to make the case, Sabrina, that mindset is just as important as the mind itself. Uh, in fact, if you were to push me, then I, will, I would argue that mindset is more important than the capacity of the mind. Uh, we, we all know individuals with great mentalities, a great mind, the capacity, uh, quite educable, but they have the wrong mindset. And we don't have to look very far for these individuals. They are plentiful right in our own families. So the impact that a single individual can have on another is paramount in my mind. That is why we are so adamant. We are so, I mean, we're so excited about this opportunity. You know, uh, I met with some gentlemen, with a couple of gentlemen today, Zilla, just before this call, <clears throat> and I remember making this statement because we talked about the book, we talked about some of the tenets of the book, and I said, guys, listen, I love chasing that dollar. I, I really do. I make no apologies about it because I love the effect of what it does and the fact that it allows me to make significant contributions to make the world a better place. But I said to them, the Institute, and I shared the band on my uh, arm, our mantra of the Institute, Sabrina, is work hard, relate hard. And we everything kind of falls somewhere, quite neatly, I think, underneath that particular mantra. But I said these words. Making a dollar is one thing. Making a difference is quite a different thing. And I love this space that I occupy today in making a difference because we believe, I mean, literally, real time. Dr. Fluker and I can tell you, you, you can see the aha moments, whether that's an adult or whether it's a student, these aha moments and they will leave those sessions in my mind. I'm just naive enough to believe this. They will leave those sessions very much like I left Miss Nichols' home, daring to think different. Because what did I say earlier? When I think different, I do different. And if we keep that up over a lifetime, it is amazing. It is immeasurable what one can do to affect change in the lives of others. And uh, what we do today, the session we had with those 19 colleges uh, represented, I mean, we could do that every day. Uh, I, I read that out of Dr. Fluker, and I think she reads that with me. It's such a great match and marriage of interest that we are just absolutely too excited about. 